For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome back. This is another episode of In Liberty and Health. Today, I have a returning guest who's been on, um, I'd say, three or four times now, and I always enjoy talking to him. Uh, we're going to discuss all things foreign policy, specifically um, Israel, Gaza, Palestine, and all that that's been going on there. I don't think I've dedicated quite a full episode to it, so um, we'll get pretty deep in there, and I'm sure some other stuff as well. So make sure you like, subscribe, and share. Head over to his channel, Conflicts of Interest, and subscribe there. Um, all the links and all the stuff I got is all listed below. So without further ado, let's rock and roll. What is up, everybody? My name is Kyle Matovic. I am the host of the In Liberty and Health podcast, where we talk all things liberty, health and wellness, and beyond. My hope is to encourage and spread the message of liberty, physical and mental well-being. I hope you enjoy all the topics we talk about with our guests. We're on all major streaming platforms, so please sit back, relax, and enjoy. Man, I'm doing as good as anyone can do getting buried by his 13-year-old son on leg day. <laughs> I'm not going to apologize for not being on this podcast because I got to go see Metallica. So if that's a problem, kiss my ass. Okay? I am. <laughs> All right. Kyle Angelo, and welcome back, brother. Hey, Kyle. How's it going? Excellent. And uh, as we were uh, shooting the shit before the show, um, about to be a lot better. And I think uh, probably in the next few months you will be as well. So uh, I guess real quick, uh, give a brief introduction. I'm sure people know who you are, but just in case they don't. Yeah, Kyle Anzalone. I am the news editor at the Libertarian Institute. So if you check out that website, of course, there's a ton of great stuff coming out of the Institute. New books all the time. Uh, Scott's forthcoming book on the uh, U.S.-Russia relationship and the proxy war in Ukraine provoked uh, is coming out hopefully, you know, sometime pretty soon. Mm -hmm. And uh, we just got a brand new book out by Joseph Solis Mullen on the fake China threat. That's absolutely excellent. Uh, and then also I'm the opinion editor at antiwar.com. And I also do some writing over there, too. So just about every day I'm writing a new story or two. And then I work and put together the viewpoints at antiwar.com. So if you go to that website every day, the spotlight article and the four viewpoint opinion articles above it are the ones that I kind of curate and put together. And then uh, I host conflicts of interest with Connor Freeman, who I'm pretty sure has been on this show. Plenty of times, plenty of times. Yeah, I um, it's kind of funny that I see uh, I listen to Dave every single morning, Dave the camp, and he always is bringing up you and uh, Connor's articles. I'm like, man, I, I can't imagine how hard you guys have to work to stay up to date with all this stuff, and especially right now. Um, I think you were the one that kind of broke in our little chat that uh, this whole deal on October seventh was going down, and um, I remember you saying like, what the hell is going on in Israel right now? And then like the next day, just 
it almost seemed like the world changed. I mean, it wasn't quite as massive as like COVID, but you knew it was a big deal. So um, uh, one thing I kind of wanted to start at and kind of work our way out till today was like, I believe the thing that I heard that kind of started a lot of this stuff was the rating of the Alexa mosque. I think it was called. Um, what's the truth behind that? Because um, I know everyone kind of thinks it's like the frog boiling in the water, but I feel like there was more of a catalyst. Can you uh, elaborate perhaps on that a little more? Yeah, well, certainly that wasn't the reason for the raid overall, right? Mm -hmm. Like this is has been something that's been planned for months, if not years. You know, this was a very uh, complex operation that was conducted by Hamas. You know, certainly a, a terrorist attack. But, you, you know, just like 9-11 or something like that, it, it, it takes time to plan something, even if it's horrific, right? Like the, a part of it is how long it took to plan. And so uh, the day before or maybe two days before, uh, there were some changes at the Alaska Mosque and how Israel polices it. They uh, made it so that I, I believe you had to be under the age of or over the age of 60 to enter the Alaska Mosque as a Muslim man. And they were having groups of pretty radical Jewish uh, people, you know, people who, uh, you know, believe in things like rebuilding the the Jewish temple on top of where the Alaska Mosque currently is. And so, you know, this is extremely provocative to, uh, you know, the Arabs that live in Palestine, the, the Palestinians that live in Gaza and the West Bank. And I think in recent years, Hamas has really emerged as, uh, in one of the things that they have tried to present themselves as a little bit, of this is propaganda, but a little bit of this is a role that they're actually filling as kind of the Muslim defenders of the uh, Temple Mount and everything, you know, in that, you know, ancient city of Jerusalem where, you, you know, all these religions have roots and, you know, people claim that this is essential to like, you know, the, their spirituality and their experience and identity as a person is connected to, to this very religious site. By the way, there is a fantastic series that I am now uh, probably about halfway through by Martyred Maid, Daryl Cooper. I think it's like 20 hours long. I've been doing some uh, home renovation stuff. And so I've been listening uh, to this as I'm working it. And he goes over and, you know, I'm listening to him talk about in 1929, uh, the in the days before, uh, I believe it was the birthday of the Prophet Muhammad that, that the Muslims celebrate, uh, the the, a bunch of Jews went to the Wailing Wall, went to uh, areas uh, around the Alaska Mosque and, and held these demonstrations and were, you know, just doing things that, that were seen as very provocative by the uh, Arabs. And this provoked, uh, you know, a first round of violence of just kind of Arab roaming, you know, violence against Israelis and then retaliation and retaliation and retaliation. And, and so, you know, the, this is just something that has been going on in this particular area, not for centuries, as people like to say, but, you know, for the past century, as uh, there, there's been like, you know, this increasing colonial movement in, in what was Palestine and is now Israel. So, you know, in a, in a sense, Kyle, it does have everything to do what was going on at the Alaska Mots. But in another sense, it had nothing to do with it because, you know, this was a long term military operation. And what Hamas really represents is, you know, the controlling faction that you know is in power in uh gaza which is between a prison a refugee camp and 
you know, it's even referred to as a concentration camp because of the cruelty enacted upon the, the people that live oh. there. But, you know, this isn't a free territory. This is 140 square kilometers. It's, I think, six kilometers are you know, not square miles. So it's about six miles wide. And I guess that makes it 20 or so miles long. And it, it's one of the most densely packed places on Earth. Uh, 80% of the people who live in Gaza are not people who are historically from Gaza, but refugees from other areas of Israel. Uh, in 1948, there was what was called the what is called the Nakba uh, that translates to the catastrophe. This is when uh, the Arabs were driven out of a lot of, you know, what is now Israel into what, you know, the the West Bank or Gaza now. And so that's why a lot of people in Gaza are there. By the way, uh, the 2.3 million people that live there, again, 80% refugees, about half, 1 million of those people are children. So uh, Hamas controls Gaza and, you know, they, they carried out this operation, I think, largely because, you know, of the suffering of the Palestinian people and that this has created, you know, some group of radicals within the, the Palestinian population of Gaza. And they conducted what was, you know, amidst between a terror attack and a military operation uh, mm -hmm. in southern Israel on October 7th. Uh, you, you know, there certainly were aspects of this that were just enacting cruelty on the Israelis. Now, some people will point out that part of what Hamas did here was meant to be tactical, right? They wanted to take Israeli prisoners and then exchange them for Palestinians and for additional, you know, to say rights for the, the people of Gaza would be ridiculous, but loosening of the restrictions. And so let's say they, they're willing to trade 30 prisoners and Israel lets the, the fishing boats in Gaza go 15 kilometers into the Mediterranean Sea versus nine kilometers into the Mediterranean Sea. Maybe they let an extra, you know, 100 pounds or however they measure it of food come into Gaza every single week or every single day or so. Mm -hmm. You know, these are part of the things that uh, Hamas want to negotiate, but they also want to negotiate the re reliefs of thousands of Palestinian prisoners. And a lot of the Palestinians that are in Israeli jails are there not because they're guilty of anything a libertarian would consider a crime, but they're essentially political prisoners. Mm -hmm. You know, kids that are in jail for throwing stones, uh, people in jail for protesting, are being involved in, you know, Palestinian rights movements, um, you know, maybe defending themselves or even acting in a blurred, you know, defensive way where, you know, right. the, these two groups get together, fights go down, and then, you, you know, all the Arabs are the ones that end up getting arrested on the Jews is kind of how, how it would end up working out in a lot of areas of the West Bank. And so, you know, people will point out, and I'm sure that Hamas really did think that, oh, this is something that we could do. We could exchange prisoners for our prisoners and we could exchange prisoners for more food and fuel and other things. And this isn't without precedent, at least in the past. I know that I, I believe it was a body of some Israeli soldiers that had conducted a raid uh, within Gaza, and they swapped those for some prisoners. And so, you know, even people point out, oh, Hamas, they weren't just taking prisoners, they were taking dead bodies. Well, that, you know, that... It, it, the, the people of uh, of Gaza and Hamas have so little power 
that you know one of the few things they could trade as a commodity are, are dead israelis and so um you, you know that was part of it as well uh but I, I think in large part a lot of the other things contributing to this were the the ongoing trend of something that the biden and trump this started under the trump administration but really accelerated under the biden administration uh under its best kind of framed as the abraham accords agreements where the U.S. tried to get these countries to normalize their relations with Israel, but not resolve the Palestinian issue. So for a long time, countries in the Middle East, some who even have kind of covert relations with Israel, like the UAE, has refused to officially normalize relations with Tel Aviv because they have long said that we're not going to do this until there's some sort of satisfactory resolution to the Palestinian issue. Mm -hmm. You know, whether this is one state with Palestinians having rights and the Palestinians being generally happy, even if they maybe live as something of second-class citizens, they at least are able to function in some appropriate way in the Israeli society or a two-state solution, which is at least, you know, rhetorically what a lot of people still talk about even throughout the Middle East. Although, if you read a lot of Palestinian analysts, they'll just uh, explain that, look, the two-state solution is dead. If you look at the West Bank, it's carved up. It's not this, like, kind of backwards b-shape that it looks like on the map anymore mm -hmm. it's actually a lot of just isolated palestinian uh villages at this point and so you know there's just so many israeli settlements chalked in between these palestinian villages in the west bank and you can't have just a palestinian state made up of gaza and so there's just not a logistical palestinian state to be had at this point and and so the solution would be that the palestinians become Israelis, one man, one vote system, and the Palestinians get equal rights to the Israelis. My guess is that, you know, something like a situation in America where, you know, we can acknowledge that there's not complete equality in how the system is enacted, even if, you know, it's supposed to be that way on paper. So, you know, I'm sure even in a system like that, the some of these Arab countries would normalize the relations with Israel. But uh, as far as it stood, uh, you know, they had relations with Israel, but the Trump administration was really looking to score some points on foreign policy. And so they signed the Abraham Accords where they basically bribed Bahrain, the UAE and Morocco with weapons, Sudan as well, uh, with weapons in order to get these countries to normalize relations with Israel. This has been a pretty big failure. Uh, the UAE doesn't seem all that interested in the F-35s they were promised. Washington said that they had to make uh, certain concessions on deals with the Chinese in order to get the F-35s. And my understanding is that is still held up. With Morocco, there's been some success, although, you know, th this deal has really come at the expense, not only of the Palestinians, but a group of Western Saharans who uh, live under pretty brutal Moroccan occupation. There's about 500,000 people there. Um, I don't know as much about it as, say, this the situation with Palestine historically and everything like that, but uh, there are about 500,000 people who wish to become their own people and who believe they are oppressively ruled by the Moroccan government. And so Israel and Morocco have signed defense, defense weapons agreements and things like that. Um, so there has maybe been some success there, but not really a whole lot of other success. And the Biden administration was really pressing to expand this to Saudi Arabia, which 
probably would have been the real prize in the Middle East. And I'm not sure that was going to happen, uh, at least under the Trump administration. The Saudis were really looking to get uh, the U.S. to to sell them a nuclear program where they would be able to enrich uranium uh, and have all basically all the technical capabilities to build a nuclear weapon. Although, you know, not that they would necessarily do so. Um so the U.S. likes to sign nuclear nuclear energy agreements with countries uh, modeled after what they call the one two three agreement, where they build reactors in these countries. Those reactors, you know, burn fuel, produce waste, but then the U.S. is you know will refine that waste and, and make it into rods or more fuel. And, and so these countries don't have enrichment capabilities because mm-hmm. you know once you have enrichment, you can figure out how to enrich from you know, 3% to 6% to 95% where you make a bomb. And so they don't want that. Uh, But the Saudis do don't want to sign one, two, three agreement. They just want a nuclear program from the United States. And they also want a mutual defense pact modeled after the U S Japanese agreement. And so I'm not sure if they're going to get one or both of those from the Biden administration, but uh, now it appears to basically be impossible for the next several years for Saudi Arabia to sign any kind of agreement with Israel. Uh, You know, uh, the Iranians have really become uh, the champions of the Palestinian cause. The Iranians, along with what they dub as the axis of resistance, this is, uh, you know, the Iranians, the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria, Hezbollah and Lebanon, and more loosely, the Houthi in Yemen. You know, these groups, Hezbollah, the, the more so than any of the others, are not Hezbollah is probably the most likely, you know, one that you could call a proxy of Iran, where the Shia militias of Iraq and Syria and the Houthis in Yemen are far more their own group. Uh, but nonetheless, they these groups see the problem in the Middle East as being the American occupation and the Israeli occupation of Palestine. And so uh, you know, together with them being the champions of this movement and them being the long-term kind of uh, strategic foes of Saudi Arabia, balance of power, spheres of influence in the Middle East, uh, Tehran versus Riyadh is a you know very important balance. And so I don't think Saudi Arabia would ever be able to, at least not in the coming years, normalize with Israel after this, or it's going to cede a lot of, you know, influence on the ground in the Middle East to Iran just based on them being the champions of the Palestinian people and that cause, which is still pretty, I think, pervasive among people in the Middle East. Mm-hmm. Gotcha, gotcha. So kind of going back to something you were uh, going on about a little bit there earlier was the uh, prisoner negotiations. So um, you kind of mentioned something about there being a body that um, Hamas had captured at one point, and they kind of got a little bit of leverage over the IDF when it came to negotiations. Weren't there similar prisoner negotiations like Hamas had captured a few IDF soldiers and had got actually like some notable concessions from Israel? I, I know I'm being very vague, but I think I, I think there's something more specific here. Maybe I'm wrong, though. Yeah, uh, this, this has happened. I don't have any more specific details. I want to say mm-hmm. around 2012 or 2014, uh, around those operations, uh, this occurred. Mm-hmm. 
not not I don't at least maybe the release of a body has happened in the past few years, but I don't think they've okay. captured any Israeli soldiers in quite some time. Okay, all right. Well, then maybe I'm mistaken then. But um, basically, I, I think the point that you were getting at there was basically like this kind of set the precedent that like they had the impression that hey, maybe if we capture a fuckload of prisoners, then maybe we'll get a lot of leverage. But I think that kind of backfired and ended up being the situation like they're now just going balls to the wall against Gaza. Well. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, it, it kind of, I, I was just, I wanted to throw that out there to let people, you know, kind of hear that. Look, because a lot of people are saying, oh, this was just pure brutality by Hamas. Right. This is pure savagery, you, you know, and it, some things that they did in Israel, certainly ju right. just absolute. But savagery, you never hear brutality. the people say the same thing about the way the IDF treats Hamas or, you know, the right. Palestinians. But, but I just want to add, you know, there was some tactical value, at least some, you know, something that you could see where they could, they were trying to take something to negotiate for something that they feel like was taken from them. Which is, I think, more understandable than uh, the, the methodology and the mindset of a terrorist who right. they're going to go into Israel. They're going to, you know, rape a woman, you know, murder somebody in a very gruesome, brutal, you, you know, just I think we feel differently. Even if it is a group of children being killed by a bomb, for some reason that just kind of resonates emotionally differently with people than a child being killed with a knife, right? right. There, there's just something more disgusting about that. And and look, I'm not saying that that's like a good phenomena among humans or something like that. I just think there that there's a little bit more of a feeling that if you look at a situation and, and somebody was killed with a knife and somebody was killed with a bomb, you look at the murderer uh, of the knife wielding murderer to be more of a savage than the pilot who dropped a bomb. Even if that pilot killed more people, I, that's just kind of the way people look at it. And so, you know, a lot of people look at what Hamas did as just absolute savagery, absolute terrorism. And absolutely, there's a lot of that. There's just also, you know, a, a, some tactical value in you know, this is a point being made uh, by Palestinians and, you know, Hamas leadership and, you know, just a knowledge that they're not completely making it up. Yeah, I got you. So one thing that I've also heard, and I'm not sure if you've seen any reports of this, I was trying to look into it a little bit, but I wasn't really able to find too much, but I, I didn't really look too hard either. But I heard that the uh, prisoners were actually treated overall very well by um, the uh, Palestinians and Hamas. Like they weren't being tortured or anything like that. Like I heard the treatment was actually really good from multiple different people. Now, once again, I didn't look into this, but um, would you have to know anything more about that? So there's been... You, you know, it's mixed, of course, just mm -hmm. and this probably comes with the fact that there were, you know, different commanders who probably gave different orders, sure. uh, different groups of soldiers that went out. And there are you could read reports in Israeli media of Israelis saying that, you know, either when Hamas was in southern Israel on October 7th or after they were captured and brought into Gaza, that they received fair treatment. I don't want to say good treatment because anytime anybody's holding a gun <laughs> at you and forcing you to, you know, be somewhere you don't want to be, that's, that's not good treatment, but, right. but, you know, we had this portrayal of the, 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 these people are absolute savages. And so you assume that if they take a female hostage, they they're going to do awful things to her. Right. right. Even if they're not going to kill her, they're going to, you know, do sexual things to this woman. They're absolutely horrific. And absolutely. so, the fact that you have, you know, the, these 
you know, women coming out and saying, oh, I was captured by Hamas. And, you know, they generally tried to keep me from being killed in any crossfire. They allowed me to have food, water. Uh, a couple of the older women who were brought into uh, Gaza were given, say they were given, you know, fair medical care. There's not great medical treatment in Gaza, but it's not like they were just given dirty bandages and that they were, you know, they were given medical care, treatment, food, water, and things like that. And so again, it, it, you know, it's not that this made what Hamas did in any way noble, just that again, these people aren't complete savages. And th that's some evidence of this. Now, I'm sure you could also find plenty of testimony. And I've seen testimony of Israelis who, who talk about being, you know, brutalized and that their kids were like psychologically tortured and just parents were killed in front of children mm -hmm. and, you know, certainly things like that also happen. I don't want to downplay that at all, but I think that's, everybody knows that happened. Right. And so you, to try to highlight some other things are, are important too. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the other thing that's kind of been floating around out there is that uh, you see this law on the right. They said that uh, Biden had given the $6 billion to Iran and now it was Iran that was funding this whole deal. So I know what, it, you know, kind of the whole storyline of this, but could you elaborate on kind of what happened there and how that may not be the case? Yeah. So, I mean, you really go back to 2015 and basically it's the, the same argument that a, a second time around, which is when Obama signed the nuclear deal with Iran, the U.S. released funds that were held internationally that were Iranian. It was Iranian money. It's just that it was seized decades ago, and it's just been sitting in accounts ever since. And so when Iran agreed to put additional restrictions on their nuclear program when they signed the agreement with Obama, Obama freed up some funds. Now, the Republicans at the time said, oh, no, Obama's giving money to terrorists. Well, he was giving money to the Iranian state. The Iranian state does a lot of things with their money. And, and you know, it, all government money is fungible, of course, right? Like if a casino opens up and all the politicians say that, oh, this is all money that's going to go to schools. Well, what are they going to do? They're going to give that tax money to schools and then they're going to take other tax money and put it in other places, right? It's mm -hmm. government money. It's, it's fungible. It could go anywhere. So I'm sure that a portion of that money you know, went to the Iranian Al-Quds force. However, if you look at what they were doing in 2015, the Iranian Al-Quds force was uh, arming the Shia militias in Iraq and Syria to fight against Al-Qaeda and ISIS that had declared an Islamic caliphate that was the size of Great Britain. And so, mm -hmm. you know, the idea that Iran is funding terrorists with the money is not really true. They, they do fund other groups in the region. Uh, now, so when we're talking about the current thing is Trump got out of the nuclear deal. And so the, the situation between Iran and the U.S. got worse again, the, the relationship. And so Biden ran on a platform of just getting back into the nuclear deal. Uh, but he refused to, refused to, refused to. Right. And so then uh, they end up negotiating a prisoner swap and some more internationally held Iranian money ends up getting released. This happens just weeks before. Uh, the the attack. So again, as we start off this show by saying this wasn't a reaction to what happened to the, uh, the Alaska mosque on Thursday for the attack on Friday, it, this wasn't didn't have an impact on Hamas. Now, in that particular money, 
it's actually going into like Qatari accounts and then they're purchasing things on behalf of the Iranian government. So yes, I'm sure that the Iranian government will use this to buy things that they would have otherwise bought. And then they free up some money in other places to do other things. I don't think they're going to give all that money to Hamas and they certainly didn't get any of that money to Hamas in two weeks. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, it's just kind of ridiculous to, to pin this on uh, uh, Iran in that particular deal. And if you look at the wider scope of it, Iran's probably not Hamas's largest benefactor, the Israeli government is. And look, you know, we could do a whole show on this, uh, but it, the co-host of my show, Connor Freeman, along with Scott Horton, who I'm sure everybody knows, uh, put together a really, really good article that we ran at antiwar.com and the Libertarian Institute about the long-term uh, Israeli support for Hamas, you know, that includes giving job for jobs to Palestinians in Gaza to go work in Israel, and then they get paid and they go and they pay taxes to Hamas. And the Israeli government knows this. And so if you're going to say that Iran funds terrorists by funding Hamas, then you can also point the f f finger at Israel just as directly for doing so. And so, you know, this had nothing to do with that particular agreement, nothing to do with that particular batch of money. Uh, it, it's mostly Republican talking points that were dusted off from the original uh, Iran nuclear deal that Obama signed. I guess it's disappointing that people fall for the same propaganda twice. But the Biden administration right now is saying that the U.S. stands taller and seeds further than any other nation. It's the in, uh, indispensable nation, quoting Madeleine Albright. Uh, they're talking about a new axis of evil, quoting George W. Bush. And so mm -hmm. I, I guess the propagandists are just getting really lazy these days. <laughs> yeah, it's funny. And um Cutter, um, they declined to give that money back to Iran. Um, I think like literally a couple days after that whole deal broke right. out, didn't they? That that's my understanding. I need to look and, and just check and make sure uh that they haven't kind of covertly tried to change it or if they're maybe or... allowing a grace period or something. Mm -hmm. I could see the White House being interested in at least trying to keep the possibility of negotiating with Iran on ice, and so maybe not trying to rub it in too hard by by freezing these funds but i you know that they'll e even if they're wrong about this i'm sure politically they assess that uh the, the republicans will have ammunition uh if, if they continue to give this money so e even if that's not correct even if you know you I mean, look, you have Biden, Kamala Harris, Jade Sullivan, Antony Blinken, Victoria Newland. Right. You don't have anybody in the White House who could probably like have a conversation like me and you are having here. Mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm serious. Like maybe right. Victoria Newland could like right. actually sit down, talk about the Middle East and everything. But everybody else is like a, a JV squad, lightweight, just <laughs> not a very serious, you know, thinker. Not, not anybody who like Henry Kissinger at least understood the globe right but mm -hmm. but these men don't it's it, it's very disturbing and so um yeah I, i'm i'm sorry i kind of lost my train of thought there no no you're good the problems oh just that there there isn't anybody in the white house who could go out and make the argument that these funds aren't going to hamas it is just mm -hmm. it's not because it's not true it's just because they're intellectually incapable at this point
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, so yeah, and you're always hearing that like Iran is the biggest state sponsor of terror there is, but like to me, that that's never really been clear. And like, even if they are, like, what is the capability for Iran to project force to America? That just has always seemed absolutely ridiculous to me. And to another point that you made earlier about uh Mike Johnson bring up the new acts of evil, of course, it was <laughs> Iran, North Korea, Russia. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done in china the same four countries that seem to always be at the bottom of as doug Burgum said all the cyber crimes and then like he said the acts of evil they're behind every single terror attack just conveniently these four countries that are the ones that we can't stop poking in the eye about every last little thing yeah um yeah no very good point there and i'll just add that you know when people say that they really miss the point i mean maybe you know when you look at the palestinians they are sunnis and so mm -hmm. you you know you have palestinian islamic jihad and hamas who do receive some funding from iran and they can be considered at, at least the militant wing of hamas sure. uh you know as a terrorist like organization uh but at the same time if you look at the rest of the groups they support the houthis were aligned with the u.s in 2014 against fight, fighting against al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, uh, you know, the al-Qaeda affiliate in Yemen. And so to the extent that Iran has backed the Houthis in Yemen, they've been backing them against uh, the, the al-Qaeda forces. Right now, the al-Qaeda forces operate in Yemen under the, the name the Giants Brigade and backed by the United Arab Emirates, the American ally. If you look at Iraq and, uh, you know, the main role of Iranian funding groups there, it was the Popular Mobilization Forces, the PMFs. And, uh, you know, they mobilized against the uh, Islamic State. And then the same thing in Syria, where they backed Bashar al-Assad. But he's no terrorist. I mean, he, I don't want to live under Bashar al-Assad's government, okay? <laughs> I would rather live under Bashar al-Assad's government than the Islamic State government. Which one's the terrorist government? The Islamic Caliphate of uh, Baghdadi was a legitimate terrorist government, and the Iranians bat the other side in that war, and the Americans bat the the Shia militia, uh, the Sunni uh, the Sunni militias against Assad. That became Al Qaeda and ISIS in Syria, and so. If you just look at it, it's all propaganda because America supports far more terrorism in the Middle East than Iran. Right, right. Wow. Yeah, that's a good way to put it, too. Um, you know, and I, I know it's probably a little bit of like a, uh, I don't want to say talking point, but I always say that, you know, the U.S. is the largest state sponsor of terrorism because we cause the most. And the Israeli government is no different, um, you know, with the assassinations and then their treatment of the Palestinians. And it's pretty clear what's causing the most blowback, which, you know, is they would define as terrorism is just the actions that we do over the middle east and that israel does to the palestinians and that encourages or i shouldn't say encourages but it does result in the kind of stuff that we've seen since october 7th yeah no i mean follow the the trend all the way from afghanistan the 1970s and the 1980s uh to you know iraq by overthrowing saddam hussein and empowering the 
the Sunnis there from trying from overthrowing Gaddafi in Libya uh, on behalf of the Libyan Islamic Fighting Group, was which was just Al Qaeda in Libya, and then trying to overthrow Bashar al-Assad in Syria on behalf uh, of the the Sunni uh, jihadists. I mean, every single time it's the Americans backing the extremist, you know, Sunni radicals, and it's just not the Iranians. Right, right, right. So um, one other thing I kind of want to touch on, we'll probably get into this quite a bit, is the uh, hospital bombing. So Channel 4 had put out a video, I want to say, two weeks ago that kind of detailed out, like, all the evidence to both sides. So, like, um, I know that we've talked about this a little bit, too, but, like, okay, so Israel put out a fake call that um, was clearly doctored, trying to say, that, like, this. these were the... Um, you know, Hamas planning to attack this hospital. Now, the evidence to the contrary was that supposedly Israel had warned this hospital to evacuate a couple hours prior, and they have bombed that hospital before, and they also hit areas around that hospital. But, like, the damage to the hospital didn't look as significant as, like, was originally claimed. But um, it seems like the Palestinian Islamic Jihad couldn't have had a weapon that did that much damage to the hospital. Um, I looked like a week ago to see if I could find like an update from that specific channel because it seemed pretty fair and reasonable, but I couldn't find one. Um, whatever happened to that and what's the conclusion? And if there is no conclusion, what's your conclusion? Okay, so definitely no official conclusion. Okay. And I don't have any kind of I know for sure, you know, right. you know, kind of conclusion. I guess I'll present. I, I think the facts that I think are are relevant, and then you know, people could think what they want. Hopefully, at some point, we do learn the truth, what whatever it may be. Um, so you you know, you had the strike, and it's initially reported that you have a strike on a hospital, two to three hundred dead. That number is pretty quickly revised up to five hundred, and it's presented on Twitter in English at least, as the hospital was destroyed. Now, I, I kind of have my doubts ab about that just because, um, look, if, if you, a hospital in Gaza isn't just one building, you know, this is a, a multiple buildings. And so, you know, when, when people say, oh, there wasn't any dam damage done to the hospital, well, it kind of hit like the courtyard slash parking lot, you know, there's a few parking spaces there. But at this point in time, this was just a massive shelter right? Like an outdoor open air shelter because people were hoping the one place that wouldn't be bombed uh, was the hospital. So you had hundreds of people uh, standing around outside. And if you look at some pictures that were published from earlier in the day, there's a lot of children, just I, my guess is a lot of orphans. Um, you know, there's probably a lot of people who can't find loved ones that they're looking for. And so you, you probably go to the nearest hospital and you hope to find some news, right? Oh, okay. You figure that if they were killed, maybe their body will be brought there. Maybe if you're lucky, you find them there and that, you know, somebody brought them to the hospital. And so my guess is for a lot of reasons, you have hundreds, if not over a thousand people uh, staying around outside the hospital that night. Now you have multiple footage uh, of strikes. And I guess the best the best evidence I see for the Hamas side that this was some kind of Israeli strike is a video that was identified and confirmed by the Washington Post as being a, a strike on the, the hospital. And that does sound like you, you know, a projectile moving extremely quickly. And if you listen to other videos of American or Israeli weapon systems, it, it sounds like one. That's okay, not right. conclusive evidence by any means. And I, I'm not trying to present it as that. I'm just saying, I think that's like the strongest evidence uh, on that side. Now, 
there are multiple other videos that have been published. Uh, one was broken down by the New York Times that basically says uh, that the narrative put forward by Israel, that this was a strike, uh, a rocket fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad uh, from behind the hospital doesn't make sense. That the you know they're able to take a couple views of the the rocket and they could see the projectile at least somewhat not coming from this direction, mm-hmm. and so you know they have a couple like zones where this could have come from. A lot of that territory is the Gaza Strip, and then of course a lot of that is Israel as well. And so you know it's kind of possible that either side could have dropped it from the New York Times evidence. As you said, there was this really interesting video that Israel put out right after it happened, where mm-hmm. I guess an audio recording, um, where they say they have two members of Hamas saying that this was a rocket fired by Palestinian Islamic Jihad and that it was down. This was pretty quickly debunked. It it wasn't a very good fabricated conversation on the Israeli part and even Israeli media debunked this. And so there's really not. So then the next morning, uh, you know, sky is clear and you could see the damage done and there's a pretty small crater on the ground. uh, And then, you know, people are the the death toll. I think is officially reported at 471. Mm-hmm. Uh, the American intelligence community, I, I think, acknowledges that hundreds of people died. And so, the next day, I think there's kind of two pieces of evidence: the crater, which the kind of the Israeli supporters have taken as this is our best evidence that this was a Hamas weapon because any of our bombs would have created a bigger strike. Now, I I think this actually has maybe not the 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 proof that people think it is because they basically say that the Palestinian rocket malfunctioned and just happened to crash here. Right. And so if a rocket were, were going to crash, it doesn't, and especially because they say that, you know, the, the way the rocket crashed and then the, the kind of fire that you see, it suggests that the, it wasn't under power. Right. And, and so what happens is the rocket crashes, the warhead explodes and then the, the fuel from the rocket is splattered everywhere and that ignites and that kills a lot of people. Sure. Well, if that happens, I don't know if the rocket necessarily leaves any crater at all, much less a somewhat large one. And so uh, if you look, it looks like, uh, you know, it could resemble a crater of a Hellfire missile. Of course, you don't know whatever the, the munition hit there either. There could have been an ambulance or any kind of vehicle there at the time uh, or, you know, other kind of temporary anything you know we have no idea and so of course that could severely impact the kind of crater left depending on whatever that projectile went through or if anything at all and of course uh anybody who knows anything about american weapons is they have every kind of bomb that you could imagine right (laughs) they have bombs that don't actually explode but they have sid swords propel out from the sides to slice up anything that the rocket hits, you know, they will launch these at cars that they believe uh, have terrorists inside in crowded marketplaces because, you you know, there's no explosive warhead. And so then they could, you know, hit this car. It, it, it slices up the car. Uh, I forget the name, it, but they, they like have actual like katanas on the side that, that come out sword blades. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, and they have air exploded munitions, right? And so not every kind of munition is meant to, you know, hit the ground and leave a big crater because, you know, weapons that do that are trying to either hit targets underground or hit armor, which th- there was no armor here. Sure. And so 
an air exploded munition would be far more effective in killing a large number of people. And so, uh, you know, this could be designed to use on militaries, of course, right? You know, you're trying to take out a whole unit or something, a regiment of uh, forces. But if you exploded over a hospital courtyard with thousands of people, hundreds of people inside, you're going to kill a lot of them. And, and I think that the crater evidence, if you look at the craters from some air exploded munitions, it could potentially be that. And so, yeah, I guess the only thing I, I would say that really gives a lot of credibility to the Israeli side is just how off some of the promoters of the initial narrative war that Israel had destroyed this whole hospital right. and killed 500 people. Um I'm not sure that the death toll, I'm guessing that the Americans are saying that the American intelligence community says it's in the hundreds. That means it's in the hundreds. Uh, I, maybe that means the 471 number the Palestinians are putting out, maybe the initial estimate of two, 300. But in a sense, does it really matter even, right? Like, can you conceptualize or even sympathize differently if it's 200 or 500? right right like yeah, i just i don't know people right and, and what does it, it it's just a number is a bigger number that much different to you uh, i don't know Right, right. Okay, so I guess the next thing that I want to cover, I think this just happened last week was the Jubilee refugee camp if i said that correctly. Um now i've seen a lot of people even some people that would call themselves libertarians and that's absolutely disgusting say that um you know oh well this wasn't a refugee camp this was like a terrorist base or something like that um i haven't read too too much up on this story so could you fill everybody in on what exactly happened there and what um like the total casualties is on this uh, situation yeah I, I mean scores of people it seemed have died and i guess you know one of the problems with probably counting the dead in gaza is let's say the, the night of the hospital bombing right so you have a bombing at a hospital and um that's going to create a situation where there's a lot of people that are being brought to this hospital that are being bombed in other areas of Gaza that are going to be turned away and sent to another hospital. And so I'm sure part of the way they come up with their estimate and the number of people that were killed at the hospital strike is based on how many people were brought to another hospital. Well, some of those people may have been killed in other areas of Gaza, brought to the, the hospital that was hit, and then brought to another hospital right or or people who you know were brought to the second hospital and hundreds there there's hundreds of bodies how you could ever piece together all those different people and figure out actually right. how many people died is probably impossible and so oh, right. you know everything is going to be something of an estimate right even if they know how many people how many people lived in Gaza before how many people left and how many people you know therefore died you're still not going to know in each individual circumstance so uh, my understanding is that the number is scores of people were killed like 60 or more and with with hundreds wounded and so this is one of the most crowded refugee camps in the world of course it's been a refugee camp for 70 years so they do have some you know, permanent structures there. I think anytime people hear refugee camp, they just assume that this has to mean people living in like tarps on the side of the road. And yeah. so they get kind of confused uh, by some of the pictures that they see. But, you know, think of a, a fairly densely populated urban area, uh, number of people living. And I am sure that there are members of Hamas who are in that refugee camp, mm -hmm. right? Now, some of them may just be kind of foot soldiers, some and, and remember too that Hamas is the government of the the Gaza Strip, 
right? And, and so the election was over 18 years ago. The majority of the population of Gaza are children. So I'm not saying this in any way that, you know, the, the Palestinian people have chosen Hamas, they've chosen the path of terrorism, and therefore deserve this. That That's not the point I'm making. I just want to make the point that they are more or less the, the government of Gaza. And so, you know, not only is Hamas the Al-Qassam Brigade that carried out the attack on Israel, but they're also just all the local administrators and things like that. And so I guess depending on how loosely you, you want to like talk about Hamas, I'm sure there's several members of Hamas. People always that, define it very, very loosely. Right. There's there's several but if you're looking at actual militant militant commanders and things like that, there may have been one or two of them there, but you cannot carry out an airstrike to kill even somebody who's guilty of a crime, right? That you know, this ridiculous idea that you know, if like your neighbor, right, was a mass murderer and he wasn't allowing, you know, the, the government to come arrest him. And he had a really big bunker underground. So they had to use a really big bomb to kill them. And they didn't think that you were going to be home at that time. They had kind of paid attention to when you're usually home. And so they didn't really think you would be there. And so they use this massive bomb. It levels your house and you die underneath. They murdered you, right? Like that's not something that you could do. You cannot use weapon. And look, Israel is the monopoly on violence from the river to the sea, right? Mm -hmm. That includes the Gaza Strip and the West Bank. You know, the, the Hamas rules Gaza because Israel allows them to, right? Israel controls the amount of food, the amount of water, right? They actually control the amount of drinking water that the Palestinians have and have every day for the past 16 years. Right. And, and so they are the monopoly on force. And, and so that really changes what you're allowed to do as well. You know, it is different when the country next door is attacking you. Some I hate libertarians who all go, Israel has the right to self-defense because everybody has the right to self-defense. Mm -hmm. No, there are standards to that. Right. Like I can't go into my neighbor's house, sexually assault his wife kill his child and then when he comes home and points a gun at me i can't shoot him and then say oh it was just self-defense because he was gonna kill me no you you've committed crimes you have, you have no right to self-defense at that point if if greece tomorrow decides to invade israel over energy rights in the mediterranean sea then yes israel has a right to self-defense but no, they do not have a right to self-defense against the Palestinians. They have a right to carry out justice. So if they want to go and arrest members of Hamas, they could do that. Hell, I would even be okay with them going and assassinating members of Hamas, anybody who they could find carried out this attack or anything like that. But you cannot wage a military campaign. The U.S., no matter how many uh, you know, young black Americans in a particular neighborhood are members of a violent gang that have gone out and carried out mass shootings. You know what? You know, all the if you look at Chicago, I'm sure you could find particular gangs that are responsible for dozens, if not hundreds, of deaths every every year. You know, in in all their shootings and and everything like that. You you can in no way use the military to go solve that problem. You have to use the domestic police force and, you know, normal circumstances, the justice system to prosecute these people. You can't use the military for that. Right. Okay. So I think this kind of gets us to our last um, area for the show, which is going to be um, the title of your most recent podcast, which was Destroying Gaza, but not Hamas. Um, I, I guess 
we just surpassed 10,000 Palestinians dead, which includes over 4,000 children as of Monday, if I remember correctly. Um, now, one thing that people say is that you can't trust these numbers because it's Hamas. But um, I, I guess. Um, Can I well, clarify? I could do that real quick. Yeah, yeah go, go ahead. Go, and, so this is all Joe Biden's fault because he's an idiot <laughs> and, and decided to question the numbers. And so now oh. everybody feels they have. Uh, power to question the numbers, but this is a case where they're counting the dead, right? They, they, they are counting the bodies that they're putting into the ground uh, with these numbers. And so, look, there may be some discrepancies. They have published lists of like 7,000 names. Now, I'm sure one or two of those people that were listed on that account will turn out to be alive because somebody is going to, you know, bring their cousin body to the hospital and say you know the equivalent of this is my cousin jet smith so you know mohammed whatever and they're going to say oh yeah well you have two cousin mohammeds and so they're they're going to list the, list the wrong one or something so i'm sure there there's probably some mistakes in the actual list of names that have been published but they are counting the number of dead and the un says that this is a conservative number and that there are more people buried under the rubble still and so i think the number of children killed at this point is probably closer to 5500 than 4000 good lord um, now, weren't there also aid organizations that verified these numbers as well? Because like I said, this is the pushback that I've heard from some people, even like libertarians, people who say like, oh, well, those are Hamas numbers. I don't know how much I believe it. Um, my question to them is like, how many people would it have to be, even if it's half that 5,000 people and 2,500 children? Like, are you serious? That's still a fuck ton of people that is way disproportionate to the 1,400 people that were killed um, in the Israeli direction. I also want to get the total casualties on the Israel side. Yeah, And just compare these to the numbers from Ukraine, which are pretty similar. And that's been, I think, sits under days of war or so uh, was the, the last number I saw. Like, sits under days of war in Ukraine, 30 days of war in Gaza, and relatively the same number of civilians uh, dead in both of those conflicts. It's kind of crazy, especially when you consider that Ukraine had a pre-war population of like 37 million versus the 2.3 million uh, of Palestine. So like you said, in, in one sense, it doesn't even matter, right? Because if the numbers were 5,000 and 2,500, they would still be saying, oh, it's Hamas and you can't trust Hamas, right? It, it's just a way to dehumanize those people. Right. And that's really all it is. Now, it does matter some because every person who dies, I mean, that is like a unique human life that was extinguished over probably nothing that they ever had control over in their life. And, you know, it's an absolute tragedy. But uh, yeah, there have been, like I said, the UN, I think, has been like the most prominent on this, where oh. they've like come out and said that that's low in that they're counting the number of dead and that there's probably still you know i think 1600 children buried under the rubble in gaza at this point uh far more people than that dead that you know hopefully they'll recover sometime in the future although uh it was i think 2020 patrick coburn had reported that the battle of Mosul, which happened in 2016 where the u.s quote unquote liberated uh the the city from the Islamic State, which just meant destroyed it, right? They yeah. they just rampaged over, bombed everywhere, killed anyone who was still there. Um they they said that they still had bodies under the rubble of that city. And, and that was in Iraq where, you know, at least the U.S. can import construction equipment. I mean, they're not going to be able to import construction equipment into Gaza for a long time. Uh, if ever, you know, the Israelis just may take it over and they're not going to pull all those bodies out of the rubble. I'm sure right. they'll just 
bring it on to some pit dip, dip, dump it somewhere and th those people will never be counted and so we may never know the the true number of dead but it's likely higher than the official count and i have seen these groups uh doctors that are very reputable in the united states like if you just go up to the street and ask anybody what do you think of doctors without borders they'll say oh it's a fan you know what like this is like an organization that people really like and so um is that like stack on my end or am i just hearing nothing or Oh, I, I just hope I'm not like my mic no, no, is making anywhere noises. Is that me? I hope it's not me. I'm sorry if it is. Um, yeah. So th they have like affirmed counts of like individual ads. You know, uh, there was a, a bombing of a few ambulances. I think earlier last week uh, that that you know, Doctors Without Borders gave a particularly casualty count on things like that. So. Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. So how many um, are dead on the Israeli side? Because I know the number that everybody throws around is 1400 people. They say there are 1400 people raped and killed. Um, has that number grown? I'm guessing it probably has over the last month, but um, my guess would probably be not very much compared to uh, the um, Palestinian side. Well, now that the ground invasion of Gaza has started, there are Israeli soldiers being killed on the ground. I think the last number I saw was 19, but I think that was over a week ago. So it's probably a little bit higher at this point. That's it's just my guess. I really have no idea. Um, I don't I know a lot of people for various reasons doubt the number the Israeli government is putting out. Um, my guess is it's somewhat close to the truth. Uh, you know, 1400 seems like a round number. Uh, so it's probably a little off of that in one direction or another. It, it still seems kind of unclear. Uh, I think they've published a list of over 700 names. Uh, it, I guess the one thing that's kind of unclear to me is if they're counting the captives in that 1400 toll, which would bring the number of deaths down somewhat significantly. There's 230 to 250 people in Gaza who they're counting on that 1400 number toll that, that would reduce the number to like 1150 or something like that, maybe. But I, I would guess the Israeli number is actually over a thousand. And my guess is that, you know, they end up erecting monuments and they have full list of names and everything uh, of all the, the number of people that have died. Now, I don't think this is as powerful of an argument as some people think it is. But it does seem like some of the Israelis that died were killed by Israeli forces in the crossfire. Now, I, there, there's various levels of accountability that the Israeli soldiers would have, right? If, a, if members of Hamas capture a few Israeli families and they're all in a house and they're shooting out of that house at Israeli forces, I don't think the Israeli forces are particularly responsible for returning fire and killing those hostages. Now, if there's members and there's reports of this, like members of Hamas traveling in a car with Israeli hostages and the Israeli attack helicopters blowing up those cars, then there's some responsibility on the Israeli side for those deaths. And so there, there's a little bit of that, but I don't think it's quite as significant as some of the pro-Palestinian people are making it out to be. Okay, so yeah, and the one thing that I think a lot of people bring up is the Hannibal Doctrine, I believe it's called, where um, Israel or Israel's policy is to kill all um, hostages in worst case scenario. Um, now, I, when I had Brad Pierce on a couple weeks ago, he said that there was no evidence that it had ever been used. Um, I don't know about that. Um, I've heard other people say that more recently that, yeah, they just opened fired even when there were um, civilians or people being um captured he said it was more likely uh if this is the case it was more likely an accident on the part of the idf um yeah what are your thoughts on that then 
Um, wait, what, what particular claim? I'm sorry, the uh, Hannibal Doctrine being oh, yeah. Uh, used. Yeah, um, and then some of the uh, civilians being killed who were uh, prisoners. I'm sorry, that's what I was looking for. Yeah, so, uh, you know, it, it's kind of hard to tell because there are so many dual citizens in Israel. If Israel is intentionally killing civilians, that's going to sh chafe some foreign governments quite a bit. And it's not just American Israelis. You know, there are a lot of Russian Israelis as, as well. And the relationship between Moscow and Tel Aviv is fairly important to both countries. Um, so, you know, I'm not quite sure how far they would go down the road. At the same time, I do understand the position of the Israeli government a little bit of not being too enthused about having to negotiate for these hostages because it's probably going to encourage more militant groups in, in Palestine to, uh, you know, uh, kidnap Israelis and, and hope for concessions. And so uh, the Israeli, I mean, Netanyahu is responsible for all this. So I'm not trying to make him out to be anybody who's in a sympathetic position or should be considered a sympathetic figure. However, just, you know, looking at this particular policy of what do you do when a group captures hundreds of your civilians and is demanding uh, ransoms for them, knowing that they would likely do something similar in the future if it works out. It is a little bit of a predicament that a state gets itself into when it tries to keep 2.3 million people in a giant open air prison camp and deprive them of water anytime they want. Gotcha. Yeah, that makes sense then. Um, Kyle, I think this has been a very, very informative show. Um, I feel like we covered a whole ton of ground. I feel like if anybody has questions on this issue, I'm just going to say, listen to this and you'll get everything you need. So, um, if they want anything else that's going on foreign policy, where can they find you? Check out antiwar.com every day. That's probably the best place. Like you said, um, any news story I write for the Libertarian Institute is almost always going to be published uh, on the front page of antiwar.com every morning. And also on Fridays, uh, I write for antiwar.com. I kind of fill in for Dave DeCamp. And so I think you mentioned that the morning that this happened was one of those days I was filling in for Dave. And I said, oh, boy, I'm going to be busy today. Um, so yeah, uh, especially on the weekends, keep an eye on antiwar.com because that's where I'm writing, uh, antiwar.com news with Dave DeCamp is absolutely fantastic. Uh, if you're already listening to conflicts of interest and you want more content like that, definitely check out Dave's show and, uh, the Libertarian Institute is always coming out with great stuff. So, uh, be sure to keep an eye on that side as well. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Kyle. And everybody make sure you go subscribe, check out his stuff. And until next time, everybody take care. Wow, is that taking forever to end? For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.